Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backyard Geology Canada Edition. I am your host, Serena, back for another bonus episode. If you haven't already, check out episode six of this season of Backyard Geology, where I visit Drumheller, Alberta, to check out the Alberta Badlands where the dinosaurs once roamed. Back in the Cretaceous period about 85 million years ago, the area around Drumheller was a coastal metropolis home to flora and fauna galore, including dinosaurs. Today, the area around Drumheller is known as the Badlands, where glacial meltwaters carved out challenging topography while also exposing dinosaur remains. Today, I am joined by geological consultant and paleontologist Dr. John Node to talk about Canada's own Cretaceous Park and the sediments it holds. Hello, John. Good morning. I'm glad to have you on the show today. John is joining us from Calgary to talk about Drumheller, the Badlands, and Dinosaur Provincial Park. Please introduce yourself to listeners, John. Hi, my name is John. I'm a geologist. I've worked in mining, marine geology, oil and gas. And I'm now a consulting geologist, but my secret passion is for dinosaurs. Jack of all trades, but you like dinosaurs. Have you ever worked specifically with dinosaurs or is it more of just a hobby? Well, I actually hold a research permit for Dinosaur Provincial Park here in Alberta, and uh, I did my master's there as well. Ah, excellent. I was reading about how Dinosaur Provincial Park was initially more set up for scientific purposes, but has really evolved to be also a center for education. How do you go about doing science at Dinosaur Provincial Park, just briefly? Uh, So I've got several projects that are ongoing there. I started off by looking at the sedimentology of the park for my master's and looking at the changes in river architecture in the Cretaceous. So in in the lower part of the park, you have broad rivers, fast flowing. And then as you move up through the succession, the rivers become more meandering. And what that means is the dinosaurs are much better preserved in the upper part of the park. Uh, The research I'm doing now, I'm mapping out one interval where I'm trying to map out all of those meander bends so that we can get an idea how exactly how big the rivers were that were flowing through the park back in the Cretaceous. And I've got another project that I'm looking at what are called microvertebrate sites. And these are sites where all of the small dinosaur material like teeth, uh, fish scales, uh, small mammal teeth, claws and things like that, where they get washed together during floods and during storms. And I'm looking at the differences that you might see in the assemblages, depending on what depositional environment they're formed in. So you're, you're going to get different assemblages in a flood deposit to what you're going to get at the lag at the base of a channel and to what you might see in a pond. So I'm looking at the, the, the changes in the fauna that you'll see in those different uh, depositional settings. In the first podcast based in Drumheller, I mentioned how complicated some of these river systems can be and the deposits in them. Do you find the complexity of river systems interesting or frustrating? Uh, No, it's excellent because what happens is that it helps you to know where you are in the succession. So even if you have quite a limited exposure, I know that my rivers are going to be very broad and thick sandstones at the base, small isolated channels in the middle. And then meandering channels at the top. And the, the meandering channel that I'm looking at in detail is even better because for some reason it's bright orange in color. So the rocks are generally quite pale gray. And then suddenly you have this very striking orange bed 
So I call it the orange channel, and it just means that I can identify it wherever I'm looking at it in Dinosaur Provincial Park. That's an interesting point. So because river systems are so complicated and recorded in the sedimentary record, you can essentially step right back into the Cretaceous and know exactly where you were standing. Yeah, I I think one of the exciting things about sedimentology and why I love it, so the study of sediments, is that you can take that information and put it together with the fossils and build up a three-dimensional picture of what was happening at the time. So you can literally start painting a picture based on grain size, based on channel type, based on the flora and fauna, and describe it to somebody in such a way that it really brings the Cretaceous back to life. I couldn't have put it better myself. I love that. Bring the Cretaceous back to life. So let's jump back a step. For those who have never visited Drumheller, what are the main sedimentary units exposed and how were they formed? Okay, so so Drumheller is is pretty interesting because it spans the KT boundary. So this is the the boundary between the Cretaceous and the Paleocene. And that was the time when all of the dinosaurs went extinct and about 65% of uh, the species on Earth went extinct at that time. So there was clearly a very critical time for life on Earth. So that's, first of all, what you're going to see is that somewhere in that succession, you're going to see that change in the fauna that's happening. When you look at the sediments in Drumheller, and the western part of Drumheller, you're in uh, river deposits. So it's uh, land, terrestrial deposits. And then as you work your way towards the east, so you go through from Drumheller town and where the Royal Tyrrell Museum is, and you work your way past where the hoodoos are, which are very famous, and down towards a place called East Cooley in the Atlas coal mine. And what you see is that you have a gradual change from river deposits into coastal and estuarine deposits with big estuaries cutting down into the sediments. And then you pass out into fully marine succession in the eastern part. So what what we're looking at is uh, basically a change from terrestrial to marine deposits. Or if you're flying over in a drone, you'd be flying over the coast and then you gradually make your way out into open sea. On the topic of sediments, what types of sediments do we see there? I know you already mentioned them a, a couple of times. Oh, no, don't worry. The way that, first of all, the way that they are exposed is badlands. And the badlands are called badlands because they are very rugged topography. And it was very difficult for the early settlers to get their wagons through, which were being pulled by oxen or by horses. So that was why they were called the badlands in the first place. And they looked like these incredible flat-lying, stripy layers of different sedimentary environments. And those stripes are made up of combinations of mudstones, which are obviously fine-grained, and they form in low-energy settings. So you might get them just formed on the floodplain, or for example. Then you have coals, and the coals would suggest that you had very marshy conditions to preserve all the plant life. And then you have the sandstones, and the sandstones usually represent the channels that are flowing through this environment. And if you went out to a modern coastal setting now, let's say you went to Vancouver area or you went out to Nova Scotia, if you went out to the coast there, you'd see these channels flowing down towards the sea. And then around the channels, you'd have mudstones, you'd have earth, basically, terrestrial soils. And then as you moved out into that coastal environment, you'd see the, the big estuaries opening up and you'd start getting brackish conditions, tidal flats, and then out into open sea. And all of those depositional settings are represented in the sediments that you see in Drumheller. So we just talked about the sediments that are there in the types of environments that you would see. What about these sediments made for such a good habitat for flora and fauna to be preserved for inhabitants of the Holocene, such as yourself, to study? Okay, so uh, there's sort of two questions in there. First of all, back in the Cretaceous, it was a very warm time in Earth's history, and it's probably the average 
temperature was about six degrees warmer than it is now. And there were no ice caps. It was just generally a, a very warm time. And, and in Alberta at that time, it was warm, humid coastal environments, much like you might see somewhere like Co Co Costa Rica today. So you'd go to Costa Rica and there's a huge variety of fauna and flora in, in that in, in environmental settings there. And so we're seeing a, a basically a Cretaceous version of that, with these lots and lots of big plants, lots of food for the dinosaurs to feed on, and then obviously lots of meat dinosaurs for the, for the predators to feed on as well. Um, there's some evidence that the, the, the uh, depositional settings were a lot drier as you moved away from the coast. So as you moved up into the kind of proto-Rocky Mountains, because the Rocky Mountains probably weren't as big at that time, but they were certainly in existence. And it would have been drier as you moved into that upland area. And there's some evidence that the dinosaurs would make their way up to these drier areas to have their babies, so to build their nests, lay their eggs and look after their babies. And then they would bring the babies down to the coast, perhaps when they were juveniles or year old, and they'd bring them down to the coast. And then the dinosaurs would mature at the coast and then they probably wouldn't go back to that upland environment for maybe 15 years until they'd matured and then they'd go back to have their own children in the future. Now, you also asked me about uh, preservation of, di of dinosaurs why all of this material is preserved. And uh, so there's, there's some really good reasons for that as well. Um, first of all, we, we had um, a lot of tectonic activity going on. So while we're sitting in, in Western Canada here, off further to the West, the Rockies were building. And as the Rockies built up, if you, if you have a carpet lying like this, if you push one end of the carpet and push it up, what you'll see is that, that in front of that, it, the, the carpet will bow down. And that's what's happening with us. We've got the Rockies over here, and then we've got this bowing down, forming this huge basin. And so this basin, which is called the Western Canada Sedimentary Basin, this basin extended all the way from Alaska, all the way down to the Southern US. And so this Western Epicontinental Seaway, as it's known, this, this very large seaway that extended right the way down the continent, that was gradually subsiding through time. And so that helped to preserve a lot of the sediments through time. And, you, and so we end up with huge thicknesses of this Cretaceous sediment. So that helps to preserve all of these fossils. Now, there's another thing as well, is that because you've got meandering channels, the channels are meandering backwards and forwards. And so while this, this uh, gradual subsidence is going on, the channel will migrate away and move, move laterally away, and then we'll come back again. And as it comes back, it will start covering up the fossils that were already there. And uh, also you, what you'll see is that dinosaur fossils, that a dead dinosaur will get washed up on one of these point bars, one of these banks of these meandering rivers. And it can quite quickly get covered up, particularly if there's a small flood or something like that. And there were a lot of storms here because it was so humid and very warm conditions. And so the, the dinosaur fossils were very likely to be covered up quite quickly before they're being predated upon. So it leads to some extraordinary preservation of dinosaurs. That's an excellent point. So it was a bit of a perfect storm in terms of dinosaur preservation being buried quickly after, after dying so that they were not, for example, scavenged by predators and being buried because they were, they were in the basin in general. Today, one of the reasons that Dinosaur Provincial Park is a good place to study dinosaurs and the badlands is in general is because they are exposed. Were the sediments much more vertically extensive initially? If you, if you drive to Dinosaur Park from Calgary, or if you drive to Drumheller, you drive across pretty boring, flat prairie. And the prairie is gently undulating, but you really don't see much at all. There's a, there's a lot of grass. There's a few nodding donkeys producing oil and gas. But otherwise, you don't really see anything. 
and you get to the edge of Dinosaur Park and it's like you fall off this precipice and you have a, a topography of maybe 100 to 200 meters vertical topography that's exposed there. And the reason that it's exposed and the same in Drumheller as well is that going back 10,000 years, we had huge glacial rivers outflowing from the glaciers that were forming in the Rockies and further to the north. And those outwash rivers, those basically meltwaters were flowing through this whole area and carving out these deep uh, valleys and the valleys were exposing the badlands along their, their edges. So you can actually track out, if you go to Dinosaur Park, you can track out these ancient river systems that have helped to carve out this topography. So one interesting uh, study that was done, where, where we see these sediments exposed in places like Drumheller and uh, in Dinosaur Park, that's where the badlands are exposed, but the badlands are also hidden away. So those same sediments are hidden away under the prairies. And there's been an estimate made that in our, our area in Western Canada, we've got at least another 15,000 complete dinosaurs all hidden away beneath the prairies. So if somebody was particularly desperate to try and get some more complete dinosaurs beyond the park boundaries, they could literally start quarrying down into the uh, the same sediments that you see beneath the prairies. So there, there's a lot of, what I'm basically saying is there's a lot of dinosaurs still waiting to be discovered. Right, because of the continuous cycles of skeletons and fossils being buried, and then a little bit of that was eroded away, and we see the dinosaurs we do today, but there's lots happening underneath still. The concept of erosion from glaciers has been a common theme that I have come across on my geologic trip across Canada throughout this podcast series, because I think almost every landform I've talked about has been either exposed or shaped in some way by scouring from overlying glaciers or erosion from glacial melt rivers. It's worth saying that if you look at Alberta as a whole, the whole of Alberta has been scoured by glaciers except for one little pocket in the Cypress Hills. And that's the only area that for some reason, the glaciers, they went around the Cypress Hills rather than actually scouring it. So that we can say that 99% of Alberta has basically been shaped by glaciers through time. Amazing. That's great to hear. It's interesting to hear that there's just the one, the one unique spot as well. Down in Southern Ontario, where the Geology Podcast Network is based, even if you go on a satellite view, you can see that all of our landforms and hills are trending um, southwest, thanks to the movement of, of glaciers. Mostly, and basically all of our hills are actually drumlins. So it's a common theme across Canada. Dinosaurs get a lot of attention in general. Um, I know in earth science outreach, pretty much everybody likes dinosaurs. <laughs> so what are some of the showstoppers in Dinosaur Provincial Park? Okay, so first of all, Dinosaur Provincial Park is a particularly special place because for its size, it has more dinosaur species than anywhere else in the whole world. So there's around 45 different species of dinosaurs have been found within the park boundaries. And some of them are only represented by individual elements. Uh, particularly some of the smaller ones. Yeah, the, I don't know if you guys know Pachycephalosaurus, but they're the ones with the very thick domed heads that they think might have run at each other and banged their heads together. And there's several species that are only represented by the top of their skulls because they were four or five inches thick, these skulls, and they were preserved, whereas the rest of the bones were obviously quite brittle and fragile and weren't preserved. So anyway, we have 45 species of dinosaurs preserved in the park, and uh, they range from large to small. 
There's no long necks in the park. There, there weren't any long necks at this time in the Cretaceous. But what we had, if you if you pictured the scene, which is what we love to do, you've got several big meat eaters like Despletosaurus and Albertosaurus. So these are big meat eaters and the teeth can get up to four or five inches in length. So they're not quite the, as, as large as T-Rex, but there's, they're cousins of T-Rexes. And then we have a lot of uh, herbivorous dinosaurs as well. So those include um, Ceratopsians, so horned dinosaurs. And they're, so similar to Triceratops, we have Styricosaurus, which has this frill around its head. Uh, we have Ceratosaurs as well. We have a, a whole variety of dinosaurs that are sitting in there. We also have the Hadrosaurs, and the Hadrosaurs are dart-built dinosaurs, and they, uh, they're also uh, herbivorous in, in nature. And then we have some really small predatory dinosaurs as well, like Velociraptors and things like that. And you find these beautiful little teeth from them and little claws as well. And their teeth might only be eight or nine millimeters in length. They're pretty small, but they are obviously, they, there's good evidence that they hunted in packs. And we were actually out at the park this weekend, at Dinosaur Park, and we were looking at some bones that have been predated upon by some of these small predators. And you could see the little scratch marks that their teeth, teeth and claws have made on the bone surface. So there's excellent evidence. And so we're not just looking at the dinosaurs themselves. We've got extra trace evidence to show what the dinosaurs, how the dinosaurs were behaving. And just talking about that trace evidence, there's a, there have also been footprints found in the park. And the, the, the footprints aren't quite as beautifully preserved as in some other parts of the world. But nonetheless, they're, they're well enough preserved that we can get an idea of some of the behavioral aspects of these dinosaurs as well. For example, if you see predatory footprints, if they're, if they're quite close together, it means that probably the dinosaur was walking. But if they're, they're widely spaced and, and deeper impressions, that might suggest that the dinosaur was actually chasing after something and running for some reason, perhaps because it was actually hunting down uh, a plant eater. Thank you. That definitely painted a picture of the Cretaceous. You're taking all these little clues and putting it together to see what the shoreline actually would have looked like. I heard once that the conditions that preserve footprints and the conditions that preserve bones are different. Is that true? Can you comment on that and why we see both around Dinosaur Provincial Park? That is abs that's absolutely true. For the most part, you either get areas that have fantastic footprints or have well-preserved dinosaurs. And it's quite unusual to see both. And I, I, we're sort of at the margins here. There's no wonderful footprints that are found, but there are odd, nice casts of footprints. Quite often you just see mud in mud. So you'll see muddy shapes in mud that you like. We call it dinotubation. Biotubation is when organisms mix up the sediment and dinotubation is obviously where the dinosaurs are doing this. So you get contorted sediment, but you might not really have beautiful footprints preserved in there as well. One of the other amazing fossils that we see in the park is that there's there are quite a few nicely recorded examples of mummified dinosaurs, where there's dinosaur skin impressions that are preserved in the rocks. So they've been able to use these to work out that our dinosaurs in the park, for the most part, were not feathered, because you would have seen the, the, the uh, imprints of the feathers that would have been preserved. So they were still quite scaly and uh, more like a typical reptilian skin. But uh, you can actually see patterns on the skin that are preserved in the rocks. And uh, I've seen a few examples of these in the field. And it's just incredible to think that the actual skin impressions of a dinosaur are being preserved 76 million years later. So we have skin, footprints, bones, and then all of the clues that come with those, like you mentioned, teeth marks on the bones or the type of skin that we're looking at, skin versus feathers. And also like with footprints, the distance apart that indicates how they may have been hunting or just in general living. 
and we have nests as well. So uh, not not in Dinosaur Park, but we, we found a few dinosaur dinosaur eggshell fragments. Remember I was saying that I think that they were nesting further up into the hinterland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you go down to southern Alberta to a place called Devil's Coulee, they've actually discovered nests there and uh, there's another place called egg mountain just over the border in montana where these nests have been discovered as well and some of these sites are so well preserved that you can get an idea of how widely spaced the nests were and how big the nests were so the nest might have been about a a meter across something like that it had a kind of crater-like appearance and the dinosaur was laying the eggs inside and some of those nests actually have uh, a lot of vegetation inside them and that they're it's pushing the limits of what we can interpret, but it's possible that the mother dinosaur was actually bringing the vegetation to the babies when they hatched for them to feed. So we don't know that that's true, but there's certainly some evidence of uh, extra vegetation there that may, may, you may attribute to some, some uh, behavioral aspects of the dinosaurs. All these extra things that you're mentioning, like aside from the obvious dinosaur bones, really it, I gain an appreciation of how you could actually potentially study dinosaur behavior as well as just the dinosaurs and the species themselves. Out of my own curiosity, what does a preserved nest look like? So, so it, because they get flattened in the rock, they look you, you see a flat layer that might be slightly organic rich, and then it kind of upturns at the edges. But the key thing is that you see eggshell fragments as well. And when you see the, when you see these eggs for sale, when people are selling eggs online, which generally speaking, they're not really supposed to do, but people do it anyway. And you see these eggs preserved. What you have to think to yourself is that that egg that shouldn't really be preserved in one piece because the dinosaur should have broken its way out. So what you're seeing when people mine these nests out and mine the eggs out and, and, uh, you see the eggs complete is that that's actually the bottom half of the egg. So those are those nests that they're showing are all upside down. Because otherwise, the dinosaurs would have broken out of the eggs and broken the eggshell to make to make their way out of the egg and to start living their lives. So they were abandoned nests. Yeah. So that, that these would have been ex nests where they just had some material preserved at the base. Just to go back to the behavioral aspects of dinosaurs, where there is actually a, a, a scientist at the Royal Tool Museum, Francois Terrien, and he is a, a basically a, a, a dinosaur ecologist. And his work is it's all about bringing them back to life by looking at all of the evidence that you have. And that he found some great footprint trackways down in uh, southern Alberta as well. And uh, just to put in an advert for a, a friend of mine, he's, his name is Tony Martin. And he, he wrote a book called Dinosaurs Without Bones, which is all about all of the other things that you can look at to do with dinosaurs that are not the bones and how you can use them to work out what's going on. And one of the discoveries that he made and one of the discoveries that I really look out for in the park is he found burrows with dinosaurs in them. So the dinosaurs, even though they were the size of probably oh, something like a fox or something like that, they were actually building burrows and living in burrows. So there's, there's good evidence because they found they found adults and juveniles in burrows together. So when I was in the park at the weekend, I was looking for these burrows and I didn't find dinosaur burrows, but I did find crayfish burrows which uh, I don't, I'm not sure how often they've been reported from the park, but I found some fossil crayfish burrows. So these crayfish were living on the floodplain and you do, you actually see uh, modern crayfish that are living in uh, the Bow River here in Calgary. So they, you, you see modern analogs to these ancient animals, but I found some really quite large crayfish burrows, probably about five or six inches across and about two feet long that were protruding down into the sediment that I'm pretty sure were made by crayfish. So there's, there's lots and lots of fossil data there. 
And the, the thing we haven't mentioned, we're so excited about dinosaurs, is that there's another five or 600 species of fossil animals which have been identified from these sediments as well. And that includes everything from bivalves, uh, snails, fish, lots of different types of fish, amphibians, uh, birds, pterodactyl, two species of pterodactyls found in the park. That it, you name it, there's a whole ecosystem sitting in there. And these microvertebrate sites that I mentioned earlier, that's one way where you can start piecing together all of the different animals that were living in that environment. That was exactly what my next question was going to be. We're just talking about bringing the Cretaceous to life. And if you think about it, I mean, we're, we're humans and we have all these interactions with the natural world and the dinos dinosaurs would have been the same. It's You don't just purely have dinosaurs. You have all the other things like all the plants that the herb herbivorous dinosaurs would have fed on or fish that they may have fed on, etc. One of the things I was going to say is that the, the plants are actually a little bit rarer in the park, well-preserved plants. The uh, depositional settings seem to preferentially preserve uh, animals rather than plants. And they found a nice plant site and they were digging it out to find leaves. And that was where they found one of the best Gallimimus skeletons that's ever been found. This ornithomimid dinosaur that was just perfectly preserved. And, and they were actually firstly looking for fossil plants, but they ended up taking out this wonderful dinosaur that's now preserved in the Tyrrell Museum. And I was going to say about Drumheller, when you go to Drumheller, it, it was, seems like there was more plant material preserved there and better, better preserved there. And that might be to do with just difference in subsidence rates. But when you go there, you see a lot of coals and there, there are several coal mines that were, put, that were set up, Midland Coal and Atlas coal mines that were mining out these coals in the past. And the coals are relatively flat lying, so they're quite easy to mine as well. And there's also some really large fossil trees there as, as well. And so one, one of the tree types is called Metasequoia, and it, it's sort of like a, a modern monkey puzzle tree. And it has these, these cones as well. You can find these cones preserved as casts in ironstone that look almost exactly like a, 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 a modern fir cone would look, so a pine cone. So they're, 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 there's lots of plant evidence around as well. So less in Dinosaur Park, but certainly a lot in Drumheller. So some of those trees, the, the diameter of the trunks is probably maybe a meter across. And they've, they've been solidified so that the, the, the silica has got inside them and helped to preserve the, the cell structure of the wood as well. Petrified wood? Yeah, petrified wood. Yes, petrified wood. I've seen that before. It's beautiful. Just back to the to the point about dinosaurs without bones. I I'm really glad that you got to get into that in this in this podcast because like even as a kid, when you go to a museum here in Ontario, we have the Royal Ontario Museum, which is sort of the, the large museum in Toronto. It's amazing. You see dinosaur bones. That's it. I've never been to Dinosaur Provincial Park in the Royal Tyrrell Museum. Um, so do they do they feature some of the more more of the environmental factors and more of the components that we study of dinosaurs aside from just the bones? So in the Tyrrell Museum, they have quite a lot of mammalian remains that are from the, the base of the Paleocene. So after the dinosaurs died out at that Katie extinction event, they've got quite a lot of material from just above that horizon. So around 60 million years old. And that includes some really nice footprints from some of these mammals. And in fact, some of the, some of the mammals, they, they haven't found the bones, but they've only really got the footprints to go on. One of the really nice trace fossils that they have in Dinosaur Park, and it's on show at the Tyrrell Museum and also at the field station when you go into Dinosaur Park itself, is this thing called the Unionid bed. So what happened was that you had thousands and thousands of freshwater bivalves living in the river and they, these bivalves are about three or four inches long and they're they're white they're quite chunky bivalve fossils so they're mollusks and these were all living on the seabed 
And then there was a massive flood. And so the flood came along and it dumped a load of sediment on top of all these, these poor mollusks. So the mollusks frantically tried to dig their way out. So they used their, their, their foot that they have and they pushed themselves out through the sediment, leaving these very interesting traces, which are called fugitnia or like fugitives, so they're escape structures. And you've got all of these little like cup-shaped structures that these animals were pushing their way out to get to the surface of the sediment. So they worked their way up, about 30 centimeters of sediment was deposited in one go. They got to the top and then they were able to start feeding again. And then sadly, the floodwaters all just went away. So the flood subsided, the, the water level fell again, and all of these bivalves were then exposed on this, this riverbed at, at the surface. And most of them died. They weren't able to do anything because there was no water left there. So what you see is that you have this, the, the, the um, dwelling traces at the bottom. So all of these weird bumps where they, they, the mollusks were living. Then you have all of these escape structures above them with those little cup shapes where they were pushing their way out through the sediment. And then at the top, on this, on the, the top of this sandstone bed, you have all these butter, butterflied open bivalves where all these bivalves just basically died and they were just left baking in the sun. And I'm, I, I imagine that birds came down and probably fed on them because if I was a bird, that's what I would do. And so you've got a whole story that's represented by different types of trace fossils within this one sandstone bed. And that sandstone bed is part of my orange channel. So that's another nice feature for me to look at when I'm mapping this orange channel around the park. That was an excellent story that you just you just painted for me there. Thank you for that. Ex excellent, excellent, but tragic. <laughs> excellent, an excellent tragedy for the bivalves, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the Cretaceous bivalve tragedy. <laughs> and just and just to blow blow our, our minds of our listeners, that uh, the crazy thing is that these same types of bivalves are still living in our rivers today. So if you go down downtown in Calgary and you walk out in, in, to the edge of the Bow River you can find these pretty much identical bivalves that are still there today. So the freshwater bivalves, they haven't gone away. So even though we're 76 million years later, we still have these bivalves living in our rivers. So they made it through the KT extinction. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and this, they were tough. this makes an important point is that, that when we're trying to piece together these ancient environments, there's a lot of modern information that you can use to help to paint that picture. And this is what's called neo-ecnology, where you're using modern traces and modern information from animal behaviors to try and build up an idea of what was going on back in the Cretaceous. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about that when you were mentioning the footprints, because we, we know, even if, for example, looking at rabbit tracks in the snow here in Ontario, you can tell when the rabbit's running and you can tell when it's just you know hopping along leisurely or when it's being chased by something. And these are all things that you don't really think about. But the reason we know things like this is because we look at the modern behavior of animals. And then you look at the evidence that's preserved and you're able to, to piece that together and paint the picture of the Cretaceous. Yeah. And, I th and snow is a fantastic medium for, for getting quick snapshots of animal activity and animal behavior. I, I go out in the snow with my daughter. We go out and we go looking for different traces. And we've, we've seen I mean, it's sad to say we've seen a kill site where a duck was attacked by a coyote and we've got all of the footprints and you can literally piece together what happened and how the coyote took, took that duck. And then to go back to your rabbit tracks, we've got one example where the rabbit was hopping along and then you just see these two giant wing impressions in the snow and the rabbit is gone. So obviously some large predator came down and took it away for dinner. I have seen, I've seen the exact same thing. I know exactly what you're talking about there. 
yeah, I do often find winter an interesting time because you can see these stories through the snow of what's going on. And unfortunately, you do see some some gruesome stuff, as you just mentioned. I just wanted I just wanted to mention one other trace that's my favorite and my family will laugh at me for mentioning it. But uh, this winter we had the, the river froze over in Calgary, the, the, the Bow River. And they were, I was watching these geese that were all sitting on the river and they were quite comfortably sitting there. So obviously it wasn't that cold. I mean, I wouldn't want to be sitting on ice. But after they moved on, you could see where, where they'd been sitting because they had melted little impressions, that, which I call goose resting traces. And you could see these impressions that were kind of um, American football shaped. They were like sort of oval shaped. And then they had a little mark at the back where they, their legs obviously splayed out behind them. So these geese had melted these little holes into the, the surface of the ice, which were probably a couple of inches deep just by the heat of their bodies during the night. And so I have lots of photos of those because like, it's just such a cool trace. And the next thing is to try and find those in the fossil record. So there's one or two examples of dinosaur resting traces, but not from Dinosaur Park. So that's something that I'm going to be looking for when I go out there later this summer. Dinosaur resting traces. I know I know exactly what you mean about the geese too. If any of my listeners are from McMaster University, where I did my undergraduate, the, the campus is kind of overrun by Canada geese, and you always see the little melt spots in the snow from where they were sitting. Um, so just just to repeat my my point from earlier, we we know all these things because we interact with nature and with animals, and then you go look at the sediments and you're seeing some of these same patterns and you're able to make these connections. What was it again that you called that connection? Neo-ecnology. So new ecnology is the study of traces, Mm -hmm. trace fossils. And so neo-ecnology, neo is new. So it's new traces. So we're basically looking at new traces that are made just like you described in the snow and in sand and in mud, and then applying those learnings to the fossil record to interpret what the animals were doing back in the Cretaceous. And that's what you need to be able to fully paint this picture, not just the bones, as we'd like to think. Yes. Actually, I think, I, I think that the, the traces are more important than the bones because bones can be transported. You, know, you can find a skeleton and somebody could have picked that up and moved it. An animal could have taken pieces of that and, and placed them in a different environment. And it might be some, somewhere where the animal didn't even live. You, know, you could find cow bones in the sea mm-hmm. and you might be thinking, oh, well, what kind of animal is that that's living in the sea? Whereas if you find a trace fossil in the sediment, traces really can't be mobilized and can't be transported. So if you find a trace fossil, you know that the animal was there at that time and doing something behaviorally. So I I actually think trace fossils are more important than than the bones themselves. Excellent argument. I hope our listeners will consider that next time they're in a museum. Thank you so much for joining me today, John. As a consulting geologist and paleontologist, you sure have a lot to say about Drumheller, Alberta, the Badlands, and the dinosaurs, of course, in Dinosaur Provincial Park. Uh, it was really eye-opening learning about the trace fossils in Dinosaur Provincial Park and how that truly paints a picture of the Cretaceous. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, just remember to keep an eye out in your modern lives, looking to see how animals are behaving by looking at the traces they leave behind. Absolutely. Especially in the winter, if you're in Canada. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye. Bye. I had no idea how many different structures are studied in the Badlands to understand dinosaur lifestyle. The Cretaceous period was a rich time in Canada's geologic history, and I am glad that scientists like John are able to describe it. 
Once again, John has shown us how geologists read history from the rocks, painting Earth's past environments piece by piece. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this bonus episode of Backyard Geology Canada edition, please share it with your family and friends. Backyard Geology Canada edition is part of the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Traveling Geologists.